We are continuing our sermon series going through the gospel of Luke, and our sermon passage this morning is Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And we have already seen how Luke's gospel is incredibly valuable and precious to us in helping us to know Jesus as he has graciously revealed himself to us. Luke opens our eyes to the person of Jesus, to the ministry of Jesus, the the teaching of Jesus, so that we might look to him, so that we might grow in our knowledge and our understanding of, of who he is. And brothers and sisters, that is life giving. The Gospel of Luke is also valuable to us in that it helps us to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Luke paints a portrait for us of what it means to be a disciple. And in our passage this morning, we are getting the beginning strokes of this portrait. We are being introduced to this idea of discipleship. We are beginning to see and understand what Jesus is looking for in his disciples. Many of you are familiar with the story of Corrie Ten Boom, who was born in 1892 in the Netherlands. Corrie, along with her family, provided refuge for hundreds of Jews amid the Nazi Holocaust during World War II by hiding them in their home. It's believed their efforts saved nearly 800 lives. Sadly, they were eventually betrayed by a fellow Dutch citizen, and the entire family was imprisoned. Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp where they were treated horribly. The conditions, of course, at this concentration camp were unimaginable. And the way they were treated was inhumane and their health deteriorated and continued to deteriorate to the point where Betsy eventually died. If she would have been treated with just a shred of decency and dignity, she would have lived. If she would have been given food and, and, and medical care, she could have survived, but Corey had to watch helplessly as her sister, Betsy, died at the hands of the Nazi Germans in Ravensbrück. Corey, of course, survived and had a profound ministry after the war. And I want to share a story with you that took place during her ministry after the war. It's a story I've shared before, but it's been a while, and it's worth revisiting I believe you will be encouraged by this uh, as well. Here is what she writes. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were, were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, collected their wraps. In silence, left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. 
the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. He said, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a garden there. He did not remember me. But since that time, he, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You must supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole be being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive, 
in this hardest of situations. I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that the merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed for me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I, can, I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. I share this story because Corey provides us with a compelling example of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. She paid careful attention to the teachings of Jesus and understood that it was necessary for followers of Jesus to apply his teaching to their lives. She understood that obeying his commands was not optional, even when it was incredibly hard. Even when the rubber met the road and she had to do the hardest thing she ever had to do, forgive one of her captors who was responsible for her torture and her sister's death. But she also understood the blessing that comes with obedience to Jesus. As she obeyed his command in that moment that we can hardly comprehend, she experienced God's love in a way that she never had before. With that in mind, I'm going to read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. In our passage, we learn something about the teaching of Jesus, the commands of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, and the call of Jesus. First, the teaching of Jesus. Our passage begins with yet another example of Jesus teaching a large crowd, but this time it was not in a Jewish synagogue 
Perhaps the number of people had grown so large that a synagogue no longer had enough room to accommodate everyone who wanted to hear Jesus. And so here in this case, he was doing what we might call open air preaching. He was preaching outdoors and a large number of people came to hear him so large that they were pressing in, that they were crowded. They were shoulder to shoulder getting close to Jesus, whereby he had not enough room to be able to preach and teach to all of them. And they were so interested in hearing the teaching of Jesus that they were pressing in around him. This is not casual listening. It's not as though they were kind of listening to Jesus as they were walking by or doing some other tasks. They were not passive. They were not casual. They were not stepping back. They were stepping in. They were pressing in. They were crowding in. And whether they understood it or not, they gathered around Jesus to hear the word of God. The crowd was so large and so intent on hearing him teach that Jesus had to get creative to give himself some space and teach from a point where everyone could hear him. He was standing on the shore of Lake Gennesaret, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. So there he was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he got into Simon's boat, and shoved out enough from the shore to be seen and heard by the crowd. Can you imagine what it would have been like that day to have been one of those people on the shore, standing by the Sea of Galilee, people pressed in around you, trying to get a glimpse, trying to ensure that you were an earshot of this teacher who was sitting in a boat. There they were, listening intently, hanging on every word. And what is the image we get from these verses? A large crowd so intent on hearing this teacher that they were pressing in together, pressing in on him, where he had to step back and get some space. And what does this image impress on us? Well, I hope that this image impresses on us the value of Jesus' teaching. They valued Jesus' teaching to the extent that they pressed in, they crowded together, they were willing to stand and be uncomfortable to hear what Jesus had to say. Jesus' teaching is worth paying careful attention to. Brothers and sisters, we too should be pressing in, so to speak, paying attention and listening carefully to what Jesus says. We want to guard against a casual approach to his word, whereby we have low expectations regarding its value. Instead, we want to value his teaching in such a way that we are pressing in, that we are going to his word, that we are giving our full undivided attention, carefully listening to, seeking to understand what it is he teaches. 
There was another instance in his ministry when Jesus was teaching a large large crowd. But many turned away from following him when his teaching proved too difficult for them to accept. Jesus taught about who he is and how they were to respond to him, how they were to receive him, how they were to accept him and embrace him. He declared, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that has come down from heaven. And what he taught them about himself and how they were to respond proved too difficult for many in the crowd to accept. In John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69, we read, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Oh, they understood it. They believed Jesus. They took him at his word. They understand that he is the one who has the words of eternal life because he has the words of eternal life. There was nowhere else for them to go. Do we value the teachings of Jesus in this way? Do we understand that he has the words of eternal life? His words, his teaching, are life-giving for us. Do we hang on his words? Do we meditate on his words? Do we wrestle with how we need to apply his words to our lives? Do we search out the ways in which our thinking, our attitudes, our actions are not in step with his teaching? Do we value the teachings of Jesus, recognizing that he has the words of eternal life, understanding that he has wisdom that is from above? Do we press in, listening carefully, paying attention to, applying his teaching? Jesus' teaching is worth paying careful attention to, probably far more so than the crowd realized that day. We want to be those who pay careful attention to and diligently seek to apply the teachings of Jesus, knowing they are the words of God. We want to recognize the value in the teachings of Jesus. Next, we learn something about the commands of Jesus. After Jesus finished teaching the crowd, he wasn't ready to get out of the boat. Simon and his companions, on the other hand, were ready. For them, fishing was not a leisurely and relaxing activity. It was their job, and it was physically demanding labor. The best time to fish was at night, and we can imagine how they felt after a long night of fishing, especially having caught nothing. They were tired and discouraged, and as they washed their nets, they were ready to get some rest. But Jesus had another plan. He he said, put out into the deep and let down your nets. For a catch. Jesus, who was a carpenter's son and an itinerant preacher, was telling the experienced fishermen that it was time to fish. We wouldn't be surprised if they responded, Hey, Jesus, 
We respect you. You're a great teacher. If we need a, a word of wisdom, we're going to you. If we need a new table, we'll go to you. Fishing's our thing. Stay in your lane. They were the experts, and here he was telling them, go put out the nets for a catch. Simon Peter said, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. They worked hard. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to fish. They knew where to fish. They knew when to fish. They had worked hard. They had taken nothing. And so Simon Peter's listening to this command of Jesus and going, well, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't add up. We're now going out to the same place where we just fished. It is now not the ideal time to fish. The chances that we're going to catch something are simply not good. Almost nothing. But even though he had reasons to disregard or dismiss this command of Christ, he did not do so. He said, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Wow. This is a wonderful demonstration of faith by this sinful, ordinary fisherman. I have good reason to believe that we're not going to catch anything if we do what you say. And quite frankly, we're tired. We're washing our nets. We're ready to go home. This could be a waste of time. But I'm going to do it simply because you said to do it. We don't know what was going through his mind at the time, and he probably didn't understand how his response would prove such a powerful paradigm for discipleship. But his response is profoundly instructive for us in terms of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus' commands are worthy of our trust and obedience. Contrary to the evidence in common sense, Simon Peter took Jesus at his word. Contrary to their expectations, they hauled in an exceedingly large number of fish. Obeying Jesus' command was good and good for him. We too want to be among those who trust and obey his commands, even when we have doubts and even when his commands run counter to the values of our culture. Sometimes obeying his commands is hard and sometimes it is costly. Just consider his command to love your enemies. For whom is that easy? But that is his command. And it is a good command. How about his command to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him? Rather than seeking to fulfill yourself, deny yourself. Take up your instrument of torture and execution and follow me. Jesus was forthright that following him would be hard and costly. What is about his command to 
forgive. Forgiving is hard when you've been hurt, when you've been sinned against. Consider the example of Corey Tenboom. Forgiving that guard was the hardest thing she had to do. But she knew it was the command of Christ. How easy would it be for someone to walk away? For someone to say, no, I'm not ready. I watched my sister die because of you. But what kept her there in front of that man? What caused her to extend her hand? It was the command of Christ to forgive. And so she obeyed. And what happened when she obeyed? She was blessed. She experienced God's love in a way that was more profound than she had ever experienced before. There is no getting around the fact that trusting and obeying the commands of Christ is hard and costly, but it is always worth it. John Piper writes, there's only one basic reason why we disobey the commands of Jesus. It's because we don't have heartfelt confidence that obeying will bring more blessing than disobeying. A disciple of Jesus takes Jesus at his word. He says, I will obey because you say to do so. Despite how I feel, despite common sense, despite values of our culture, despite how others might counsel me, I'm going to do this because you say to do it, Jesus. Do you believe there is more blessing in obeying the commands of Christ than there are from disobeying? Brothers and sisters, we need to be convinced of this we need to be convinced of this now so that we're ready when the rubber meets the road. <laughs> it's easy for us to agree with this and affirm this until we're confronted with having to do something hard. We want the Lord to impress us on our hearts, to convince, this, convince us of this so that we will be ready to obey in those hard and difficult moments. Love what Peter said because you say, to do so, I will do it. That's the heart of a disciple of Christ. We look to Jesus, we listen to what he commands, and we say, I will do so because you say it. In our passage, we also learn something about the miracles of Jesus. We've already begun to see some of the miraculous deeds of Jesus in chapter four. We have seen him heal the sick. We have seen him cast demons out of people who were oppressed by demons. But what Jesus did in this instance was quite a bit different than most of his other miracles. In this case, he was not healing a sick person. He was not casting out a demon. He was not providing food for thousands of people. Instead, he caused the fishermen to bring in what may have been a record-breaking catch. Again, these guys knew how to fish. They knew what kind of boat they needed and what kind of nets to use. They would not be good businessmen if they regularly used nets that broke 
or if they went out in ships that sunk. That did not happen. That was not a normal part of their experience as fishermen. But the catch was so extraordinary that their nets began to break and their boats began to sink. It was probably unlike anything they had ever seen. And while this miracle was different than most others, the response was very similar to responses he received to other miracles. We read that they were astonished. The suddenness and unusualness of the catch left them astounded and amazed. How did this happen? How are we suddenly bringing in all these fish? We've never seen anything like this before. No human could simply say, go out here and fish, and we would bring in this record-breaking haul. The miracles of Jesus are astonishing and reveal things about him. As we work our way through Luke's gospel, I wonder if the miracles of Jesus have become commonplace for us. Have we ceased to be amazed by who he is and what he has done? His miracles reveal things about his character and nature. Among other things, this miraculous catch revealed that he is Lord over all creation. We never want to cease to be amazed by what he has done because astonishment with his miracles leads us to be in awe of who he is. And do you see Simon Peter's response? His response is like, not wow, this is cool. Can you do this again tomorrow? Can you show my other friends what you did? This is amazing. This is actually really helpful. This is great. No, his response was to fall down at the feet of Jesus. Say, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Through this miracle, Simon Peter recognized something in Jesus, something of his nature, something of his holiness, The miracles were not ordinary, and he was no ordinary man. And Peter was in awe of who he was. The miracles of Jesus are astonishing and should lead us to be in awe of Jesus. I hope the Lord will use our series through Luke to grow our sense of awe when we think of Jesus when we reflect on Jesus, when we pay careful attention to his teaching, as we seek to obey all of his commands, I hope that we will be in awe of him, amazed in wonder. Finally, we learn something about the call of Jesus. As we've seen, Simon Peter was in awe of Jesus. Moreover, he recognized that there was something in the person of Jesus that was incompatible with his sinfulness. He recognized that Jesus had come from God, that he was holy, and that Simon Peter was sinful. And those two things don't go together. And so his response was, depart from me, 
It's not right for me to be in your presence. You are holy. I am sinful. Perhaps he could not at that point fully articulate who Jesus was. He probably did not have a complete understanding of the person, the nature of Jesus, that he was fully God, that he was fully man, that he was the Messiah, the eternal Son of God. But he understood something of Jesus' holiness, which was a problem because of his sinfulness. The Jewish people were taught well that God's holiness is awesome and terrifying. One place we see this is in the call of the prophet Isaiah, which we read about in Isaiah chapter 6. At the beginning of the chapter, we read about Isaiah's vision of the Lord. In verses 1 through 4, we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. What an extraordinary vision that Isaiah had of God's holiness and his glory. It was staggering. It was astonishing. And what was Isaiah's response to the vision? In verse 5 we read, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. I'm a sinner. I'm in trouble. I have seen and beheld the Lord in all his glory and his splendor and his holiness. And who am I? I'm an unclean sinner. I'm in trouble. But the Lord graciously sent a seraphim who took a burning coal from the altar and touched it to Isaiah's mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah was unclean, and that was a problem. But the Lord, in his mercy and his kindness, atoned for his sin. And then the Lord said, who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. I think there, are, there is a little bit of similarity between the call of Isaiah and the, the call of Peter. Both encountered the holiness of the Lord. Both had an understanding and a recognition of their own sinfulness and the problem that that caused. And both were shown mercy and grace by the Lord who called them into his service. Simon Peter's recognition of his sinfulness did not lead Jesus to say, and that's too bad. You're out. Jesus said, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Simon Peter probably had a good reason to be afraid. Encountering God's holiness should cause us to fear because of our sinfulness. But God in his mercy 
and his kindness has provided a way to deal with our sinfulness. And though Simon Peter had yet to understand how Jesus would do this, we know. We know the story. We know how God has atoned for our sins. We know that we too are sinners. We have sinned against God. When we understand our sin and God's holiness, the right response is, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm in trouble. We are all in trouble because of our sin. But God in his mercy and his kindness has provided a way to atone for our sin, and he did so by sending Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, into the world as the savior of the world. Jesus lived a life without sin, perfectly obeying God and fulfilling the righteous requirements of God's law. He lived a holy and righteous life, which we've all failed to do. And then he died upon the cross as though he were a sinner. He absorbed God's wrath on behalf of God's people. He took our punishment in our place so that we can receive the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus died and was buried and placed in a tomb, but on the third day he got up and walked out of that tomb. He rose from the grave physically, bodily, he appeared to 500 people over the course of 40 days, proving that he is alive, that he conquered death, that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And after 40 days, he ascended into heaven where he is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he promised that he will come again. We live right now in between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. He will come again. He will render a final judgment. Our only hope on that day of judgment is in Jesus Christ. Everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Christ will be forgiven of their sins. Their sins will be atoned for. Everyone who believes in Jesus will be reconciled to God and enjoy the gift of eternal life. If you're not a Christian, Jesus is your only hope. Believe in Christ. Be saved. Jesus didn't call Peter into his service because he was worthy. Jesus called him because he is merciful and kind. Dear friends, he is merciful and kind to sinners like us as well. What is the difference between those who are useful in service to Jesus and those who are not? It's not a matter of who's a sinner and who's not a sinner. We're all sinners. We're all guilty. We've all fallen short. It's the difference between those who know they are entirely unworthy than those who think, I'm okay. I'm pretty good. I'm not that bad. Simon knew he was a sinner. He knew he was unworthy. He knew he did not deserve to be in the presence of Jesus. And Simon Peter's recognition of his unworthiness was essential to his usefulness. He recognized he was unworthy. He recognized he was the recipient of amazing grace. Brothers and sisters, we too want to recognize that. We want to recognize that we too are not worthy. But we are the recipients of amazing grace, of his kindness. As we understand this, we are useful in sharing that good news with others. 
as those who have received it, who have been changed and transformed by it, who recognize how awesome and glorious it is. We are then able to share this good news with others. In Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, which one day we will get there in our sermon series, Lord willing, Jesus said, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We want to recognize what a privilege it is, what a joy it is to be servants of the king. We want to recognize that we are not worthy. But God, in his mercy and his kindness, loves us with a steadfast love that endures forever and has called us into his service. There's another important thing we need to see about the call of Jesus. The extraordinary catch of fish that day would have been a game changer for the fishermen. It would provide a huge financial boost and something they could use to grow their business. We might expect their response to be, God is really blessing our business and we need to make the most of this opportunity. Clearly, it's the will of God. We're going to expand. We're going to buy more boats. We're going to hire more fishermen. We're going to be the best operation on the Sea of Galilee. This is it. This is our time. It has come. God has seen us. He has heard us. He has helped us. We're going big. And Jesus, we're going to help you out too. As our business goes big, we'll help you out. You know, we'll, we'll send you uh, money to help you go and do what you have to do. But of course, that's not what they did. On what was likely the most profitable day their business had ever seen, Simon, James, and John left everything and followed him. Again, we don't know their thought process when they made the decision to follow him, but their actions teach us an important lesson nonetheless. Jesus is worth giving up everything. He is worth it. He is more precious, more valuable, more desirable, more satisfying than the best things this world has to offer. Whatever it costs you to follow Jesus, give it up and do it quickly. Don't hold back. Don't think for a moment that whatever you're holding on to will somehow bring you greater joy and, and peace and fulfillment than Jesus. He is worth giving up everything to follow. Of course, the application here is not that every follower of Jesus must quit their job to follow Jesus. But the text does confront us with the question of what we are willing to give up or leave behind for Jesus. What are we willing to give up? Are we willing to give up our time? Are we willing to give up our comfort? Are we willing to give up our money? Are we willing to give up our reputation? Are we willing to give up relationships? Are we willing to give up future plans? Whatever it is, whatever it might be, anything that we might be tempted to hold on to, are we willing to give it up to follow Jesus? You see, a disciple of Jesus 
understands that he is worth giving up everything to follow. We don't follow him casually. We don't try to add him to our lives. We give up everything to follow Jesus because he is worth it. In our passage, Jesus called the first disciples who recognized Jesus was worth leaving everything to follow. And following him, they would do his work of bringing people into the kingdom. There are a couple of things that our passage helps us to understand that I hope we will in turn apply to our own lives. Our passage helps us to understand how the kingdom of God advances. We have already seen in our study of Luke's gospel that the presence of the kingdom of God arrived in the person and ministry of Jesus. We have also seen how the kingdom was advancing in enemy territory against enemy opposition. As Jesus came into the world, the kingdom of God broke into the world, which is enemy territory. We are, live in a world that is in rebellion against God because we've all sinned against him. We've all disobeyed him. And Satan and his dominions have wrecked havoc in this world. But when Christ came, the kingdom of God broke into enemy territory. The enemy resisted. Satan and his demons resisted. But have, we've already seen proved no power, no match for Jesus. But here in our passage, we begin to see how the ministry of Jesus will continue and how the kingdom of God will advance after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Through the spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel, the kingdom of God advanced as Jesus went from town to town proclaiming this good news. But we also see that that would continue to happen even after his death, after his death uh, resurrection, and ascension. That ministry would continue. Jesus began to call disciples whom he would include in his work. He told them, from now on, you will be catching men. Well, what does that mean? No longer would they catch fish to be killed and eaten. Instead, they would be catching people to bring them into the kingdom of God so that they could experience life. They would be included in catching people for the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. The spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel would continue even after the ascension of Christ because he graciously sent his Holy Spirit to indwell all who repent of their sins and believe in him. And so now his people, the church, continue his ministry, continue his work of proclaiming the gospel and bringing people in to the kingdom of God. The large catch of fish that day was perhaps an indication of the large catch of people through the ministry of Simon Peter and the apostles. After Jesus ascended, of course, we read that he sent the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter had the opportunity to get up and preach in front of a large crowd, thousands of people. And he boldly proclaimed the gospel in the power of the Spirit. And we read that thousands of people responded, repented, believed in Christ. In Acts 2.41, we read, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That was a large catch. And that was only the beginning. That was the beginning of their ministry of catching people and bringing them in to the kingdom 
of God. And doesn't this passage remind us that Jesus uses ordinary and sinful people to bring others into his kingdom? Brothers and sisters, I hope we're encouraged by this. I hope we're encouraged by the fact that Jesus graciously uses sinful, ordinary people to do his work of bringing others into the kingdom of God. He wants to use us to that end. He wants to use us to spread this gospel, to tell others this good news, so they too will repent and believe and be added. The kingdom of God advances as the Lord uses ordinary, sinful people like us to catch others with the gospel and bring them into his kingdom. Second, our passage helps us understand what Jesus is looking for in his disciples. We've already seen what Jesus is looking for in his disciples, but I think it will be helpful for us to bring it together here in conclusion. Jesus is looking for disciples who are attentive to his teaching, who pay careful attention to what he says, diligently seeking to apply it to their lives. We are all called to do this. He is looking for disciples who trust and obey his word. He's looking for those who say, this is hard, or this doesn't even make sense, but because you say it, I will do it. We're all called to respond to Jesus in this way. He's looking for disciples who have a posture of humility. I am not worthy, Lord. I am not worthy to serve you. I am not worthy to be one of your disciples. But you are loving and gracious and kind to me. We never want to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Like somehow we're God's gift to others. We want to have this posture of humility. We are servants whom we want the Lord to use. We want the Lord to use us. And he will use us in any way that he sees fit according to his grace, his mercy, his kindness. Finally, he's looking for disciples who understand he is worth giving up everything for. Jesus is more precious, valuable, desirable, and satisfying than anyone or anything in the world. And his disciples know this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is good. We thank you for what you make known to us in your scripture. We pray that the, we will be those who pay careful attention, who press in to hear what you say, knowing that you have the words of eternal life. We need to hear what you have to say. We need to apply it to our own hearts and lives. We pray that we will be those who trust and obey your word, even when it's hard, even when it's costly. We pray that we will be those who humbly serve you. We pray that we would be convinced in our innermost being that you are worth giving up everything to follow. May we know that Jesus is more precious, valuable, desirable and satisfying than anyone or anything else in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.